Hello, and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, brought to you by the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Matt Abel. Hello, Squeaky Clean listeners. Welcome to the 46th episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, where we bring you the latest in North Carolina clean energy news, policy, and more every two weeks. Before we get started, we have a few announcements to share with the group. Back by popular demand, NCSEA's Making Energy Work webinar series will return this spring and continue throughout the summer where varying topics in clean energy from finance to policy and market insights will be discussed. Join hundreds of attendees from across the country to get the latest scoop on trending clean energy topics sweeping the industry. In case you missed the webinars last year, we featured the likes of Amory Levins, Jigger Shaw, and numerous other clean energy influencers across the field. Our first webinar is coming up on May 19th, where we'll be talking electric, electric vehicles that is. It's free to register, so join us at makingenergywork.com. Next up, the 2021 State Energy Conference is just around the corner, coming up April 19th through the 22nd. If you haven't visited in the past, it's a great opportunity to receive continuing education credits, learn about new energy solutions and best practices, and connect with other energy industry professionals. Also, we're especially excited to announce that there will be a live recording of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast at this year's Virtual State Energy Conference. To find out more about the conference and to check us out live, visit ncenergyconference.com. All right, so let's dive into the topic of today's pod. As we mentioned on our last episode, this was going to be a two-parter. The first part of this episode was focused on the A1 stakeholder process, where we featured Kate Konchnik of the Nicholas School for Environmental Policy Solutions. So if you haven't yet listened to part one, pause today's episode, go back, and give that one a listen. If you've already listened to that part, then let's continue the conversation here to talk about the other stakeholder process convened as directed by the North Carolina Clean Energy Plan, the North Carolina Energy Regulatory, or B1, process. As you'll hear on this episode, this group dives in deep to identifying policies and recommendations designed to further align the interests of utilities and customers. All right, let's go ahead and dive right into this week's interview. Clean energy. Our next guest on the Squeaky Clean Energy podcast most recently served as the chief of staff for Amory Lovins, as well as senior associate for Rocky Mountain Institute's electricity practice. His work was focused on utility business model innovation and energy regulatory reform. Pulling from an extensive background in power development and supply contracting for municipal, cooperative, and large industrial customers, our guest has facilitated some of the country's most recent energy market reform processes as both a content expert and process designer. Prior to RMI, our guest served as a project developer for NTE Energy, where he spearheaded the company's renewable project development and related wholesale customer programs. During graduate school at Appalachian State University, our guests worked with the energy solutions team at Blue Ridge Energy, where they developed the first community solar program for the North Carolina high country. Now, our guest, Josh Brooks, serves as a founder and CEO of his own consulting firm, 
Brooksform LLC, where he still remains in the energy space, advancing the clean energy transition. As a quick side note to our listeners, this interview was recorded a few months back. At the time of recording, Josh was still in his role with RMI, so if you hear us reference this, that would be why. But the content of this interview is more relevant than ever as we discuss Josh's involvement in the B1 stakeholder process and their final report that was released not too long ago. All right, well, let's jump right on into the interview. So, Josh, under the Clean Energy Plan put forth by the North Carolina Department of Environmental Quality, a series of key recommendations were laid out to achieve the goals reducing electric power sector greenhouse gas emissions by 70% below 2005 levels by 2030 and attaining carbon neutrality by 2050, along with accelerating clean energy development and increasing access and affordability to clean energy amongst North Carolinians. One of those recommendations was the development of policies and tools that fall under the umbrella of energy regulatory reform. So why did DEQ recommend regulatory reform as an effective means to achieving some of those aforementioned goals? Yeah, man. Uh, so how many hours do we got? Because there is a lot uh, there. I will try to be sufficiently terse, but I, I just bear with me for a second. So starting with the clean energy plan, um, you'll recall one of the intentions was to encourage the use of clean energy resources and develop a process for modernizing the grid while and this is key, ensuring stability, reliability, security, and affordability, all of which are critical to the nation, but especially so in North Carolina, given key infrastructure, industry, tech, military we have here, while also dealing with the realities of climate change and increasing frequency of extreme weather events. All of those things are quite crucial to North Carolina. But And because of all that, those items of the CEP, the Clean Energy Plan, um, are of interest across the socio-political spectrum, right? It's not a, there's no, that isn't a divisive issue. It's becoming more and more a shared principle, right? So, so that's half of the reality. What else, what else is going on, right? So North Carolina, they're investor-owned utilities. They have their defined service territory. And for the most part, they own the electricity generation and they sell it. Um, they forecast the need, they build the resources to meet it, they ship out the kilowatt hours, and to put a point on it, that was the way of things for a long time. But now it is far more complicated. Why is that? Well, the number of grid actors and potential grid actors are growing. Like More organizations, companies, even individuals are now able to participate in the grid. The nature of the relationship is, you know, it, it's no longer one way. So if any of those, you know, aforementioned goals, this clean energy plan goals are to happen, it will need to do so in context of everything I just said and more and, and anticipate the future, right? So to your question on the clean energy plan and, and specifying why regula regulatory reform um, is, you know, kind of the focus area of that document, you know, regulatory reform means a holistic review of how the electricity system in the state is, well, regulated, right? Like what is allowed? What isn't? What is the oversight? Who are the actors? What are their responsibilities? How are they compensated? What even defines compensation? You know, and not to mention the whole point of the thing anyway, which is to reduce emissions. 
Uh, so all of, you know, all of those things are touched in regulatory reform. In, in talking about this widespread sort of regulatory reform, how how can you make sure that that you're doing it in a way that there aren't winners and losers in the future and that we can kind of walk hand in hand, right, in a way that the utility uh, doesn't have a bunch of stranded assets or losing all these investments that they've made over the years, um, but allow more participants to play in this market. Are those the sorts of considerations and conversations that have been taking place uh, through the, uh, the the B1 stakeholder process that we're about to talk about here in a little bit? So there will be winners and losers. That's what innovation is. You know, like before kerosene, you know, well oil was what was, you know, keep it was the light source, right? Like it was what people were burning for light at home. And, you know, we don't have that industry anymore and that's fine. Um, same with, you know, horses and the transition to automobiles, right? Like you don't see horses, uh, on, on, that's not people's primary mode of transportation anymore. So there will be winners and losers. I think the important point here is to take a macro view, um, which is to say society and the economy, the market as a whole will be the winner. And I mean, just to illustrate the point, you know, there'll be little skirmishes and battles and people even within the same industries, right? Like, I mean, solar companies are going to compete with other solar companies and just as uh, they're going to compete with, um, you know, generation base of utilities, you know, um, that all that said, let's think about what it is that a utility provides. They provide the ability through their infrastructure and what they generate, they provide the ability for all of us to go about and participate and be productive and buy stuff and be entertained and eat. You know, all of these things um, depend on, uh, on electricity now. And no one is, and certainly not in the B1 process, no one's advocating, a. a that's not what the process was meant to do, right? It's not meant to... Um, derail critical infrastructure or, or disable a, a business that is critical to the country. That's not at all what, what the process is about. The process explored avenues that could help these incumbent critical infrastructure supplying companies. Um, the process explored what those, what those companies, what, what the opportunity landscape is, right? Because in, in certain regard, they're, they're not they're not given an incentive to act because some of the things uh, associated with like clean energy development and emission goals, those are um, some of the, some aspects of those there isn't, they haven't figured out a way to put a monetary value on it yet. Like it hasn't been defined. It's not widespread in practice and who, who knows if it is And that, that monetary, you know, product could, could be just simply the efficiency of how an electron is moved from one place to the other. You could put a value on that, but no one has. Um, and so, yeah, the B, the B1 process really with the, with the regulatory reform, um, if you had to try to come up with a succinct um, kind of market-based opportunity view of it for, to, for this winners and losers concept, it's something... It would be something like 
just kind of looking at the landscape of opportunity and the areas where the state could incentivize the utility to go down. To your point, regulatory reform is a, a big meaty topic to deal with. And there mm -hmm. are lots of ways to, to skin the cat and approach it. And, you know, specifically DEQ uh, called out um, models and tools like performance-based regulations, securitization for retirement of fossil assets, studying options to reform the wholesale electricity market and pro competitive procurement of resources by investor-owned utilities. So have these models that were specifically called out by DEQ been successful in other markets throughout the country and why study them here in North Carolina? North Carolina is, in my admittedly biased view, the most interesting energy landscape in the country. I've said before, you know, that looking back, um, it's it's really ridiculous to think I could have ever done anything else. Uh, North Carolina's energy market is fascinating. Uh, the utilities have provided low-cost, reliable electricity for decades. The state is also number two in the union for sol solar build-out, right? California's number one. That surprises no one. North Carolina's number two. Might surprise some. Further, Energy is bipartisan here. We, we addressed this a little bit already, but the business opportunity has been such that the economy here has benefited from the best build out of solar specifically. Now, performance-based regulation um, is, there's a lot here. I'll, I'll try to summarize it. So performance-based regulation is a series of mechanisms which allow utilities to monetize services not traditionally incentivized. Right. So, so utility revenues are typically linked to kilowatt hour sales. PBR allows the utility to accomplish outcomes that customers and society desire. By P and by PBR, performance-based regulation, folks. Um, so, yeah, so it, PBR allows the, uh, the utility to accomplish outcomes and stuff that, that aren't traditionally monetized. And that's a huge opportunity, right? Because electricity demand has flatlined and for the, you know, has flatlined. I mean, there's obviously variations, but it's largely flatlined. Um, so if your revenue is what, what's, you've got to look for the, the business and growth opportunity, right? And if this is flatlining, I don't want to be in this business much longer. I, I, we need growth, right? And, but yeah, there are states, you know, examples that you can find with performance-based regulation. Um, I think there's a case study on Minnesota in the, the B1 recommendations. And I know that RMI is currently working with Hawaii on performance-based regulation. And uh, Hawaii, Hawaii recently uh, did issue an order approving uh, PBR for uh, Hawaii's investor-owned utilities, and shout out to my, you know, my colleague Kara Goldenberg, who really is an incredible source of knowledge on on, on this topic. So, performance-based regulation that that was one of the kind of the focus areas of this process uh, and these outputs. Securitization. There are a lot of things here. So, uh, securitization it it is a financial mechanism. Uh, allowing the it allows the issuance of bonds to raise funds to then refinance um, the remaining uh, undepreciated value of it 
existing assets. Okay, so in this case, um, it would be coal generation. In some cases, you know, this can actually replace some losses of revenue, and obviously, something like this being as as significant as it is would require like state legislation or something. And you know, North Carolina already does some securitization, you can call it like securitization lot, you know, in 2019, uh, North Carolina enacted the securitization of storm recovery costs, right? Uh, so I would, but yeah, I would encourage everyone to look at the final report and its supporting documents that get into this. Um, and, but, you know, to again, specifically address your question, you can find examples of securitization. Uh, Colorado is a state that, uh, that the, the, working groups look to um, for some inspiration. And, and there are a couple of others outlined in the, the NERP documents. And then in regard to North Carolina, you know, in, I think it's in Duke's latest, uh, their 2020 IRP, they, ident- they recommend something like 10 or 11 coal units retired by 2030. So that's an, that's an opportunity there. And, th- and then um, another area so we've covered performance-based regulation and securitization another area that the b1 slash nerd process looked into was wholesale electricity markets and you know this this uh, this wholesale electricity markets are, are really where i spend a lot of my um time you know studying and researching and doing work and you know it's not it's not as easily understood or relatable to most folks, right? Because, you know, as customers, we are paying our retail electricity rate, right? And the, that's the retail market is where you and I and any end user is involved. So wholesale markets are, you know, they refer to the much larger bulk transmission level where electricity is generated. Um, and then sold. it's generated by one party and then sold to another party, like a local municipality, for example, or a co-op. And they then resell that power at the retail level, you know, a, a lower, lower voltage and everything. So different infrastructure and everything, right? You, you step it down, transmission level, step down to, the dis- to distribution, sold at the retail level. And so like in 2018, Duke Energy provided 96% of North Carolina's electricity. Dominion uh, up in the northeast corner provided 4%. And then combined, 23% of sales were into wholesale markets, the wholesale electricity markets in the state. So, you know, you can you can see that that's, a, that's significant. But this area is relevant to North Carolina, right? Last year was a kind of a big year for North Carolina and, and wholesale-related news, right? So this is, the Southeastern Energy Exchange Market called SEAM was proposed. There are energy exchange markets being talked about. And then there's full-blown like deregulation or joining a regional transmission organization, which, you know, dear listeners, would be the PJM to the north of us. Um, the nation has seven deregulated markets already, right? And uh, territories adjacent to RTOs may participate in a energy exchange market, right? Like, so, but the nature of energy exchange markets, they're really new and they're changing. And um, there's only one operational one, I think, in, in the country, in the Western 
and then um, there's one in development right now. The last content area is competitive procurement, right? Uh, all source procurement, competitive procurement. So the stakeholders in the process defined competitive procurement as an IRP driven all source procurement to meet all the identified needs um, for new resources in a manner that is consistent with like public policy and, and uh, directives and the best available price. This study area was the youngest. It was the most recently formed, right? So they, they did not have the benefit of time that the other ones did, uh, but they still, you know, put a really rigorous study and outputs, which you can obviously see. Uh, it's safe to say that uh, that research re there's going to be a lot of research and negotiations, um, I'm sure, uh, about this topic, right? This topic interests all parties involved, right? Competitive procurement. For example, NERP only began to discuss what constitutes resources that could participate in this, right? And are those resources only generation? Could it be demand response? Does efficiency count? What about distributed resources, right? Is it, How do you aggregate all that stuff? Do those things qualify to participate in any kind of competitive procurement uh, mechanism um, built out, right? So yeah, there's going to be a lot of work, a lot of work in negotiations amongst a lot of, a lot of interested parties. But, you know, the precedent here that the study group kind of calls on is House Bill 589, which did establish a competitive procurement program, uh, the Competitive Procurement of Renewable Energy Program. Obviously, I'm sure your uh, listeners are familiar with that, but just to cover my bases, that is a competitive bidding process for renewable energy projects in the Duke, North Carolina system. So uh, then to get back to the Clean Energy Plan, the Clean Energy Plan identified many non-generating resources such as efficiency and battery storage, I think, as grid-scale technologies. Um, and these are technologies not traditionally in line with utility capital expenditure and return model, right? So uh, Colorado, again, is an example of, of, a, of a state where you can see um, reform, regulatory reform and some innovation in, in this space. Um, and then, you know, you can see how, given the number of North Carolina market players and establish, the established solar industry, ownership of generation base and how things um, are procured in the state already, like you can see that this is of great interest. Well, uh, Josh, I can I can say that I will be the first person to sign up for your master class on regulatory reform. The only caveat is you have to serve PBR to drink throughout the course uh, so I appreciate that overview and I appreciate you, uh, you listening to my terrible dad jokes related to regulatory <laughs> reform. Well, I was going to say, uh, you looking for a PBR sponsorship of uh, squeaky clean podcast. Shout out to Paps Blue Ribbon. If you're listening, we want you. Um, so, so moving along here, so all of these recommendations that, that we just talked about and you provided uh, an overview of. Uh, led to the creation of the North Carolina Energy Regulatory Process, otherwise known as NERP, or you'll probably hear us talk about it in the, the terms of, of B1 stakeholder processes, um, to explore and advance some of the previously uh, mentioned items. So 
your organization, Rocky Mountain Institute, and the Regulatory Assistance Project were selected to help lead up this process. Can you tell us how this came to be and also a little bit more about the logistics of the stakeholder process? Yeah, Matt. So just real quick point of clarification, the content areas I, I discussed a little bit ago are certainly um, introduced and discussed in the clean energy plan, but the B1 process didn't explicitly start with a directive to look into performance-based regulation and securitization and competitive procurement wholesale markets. Those Four things are just general categories of investigation that are that are really like they're quite broad and they're holistic. So you're going to touch on almost everything by looking looking at those things, right? Um, but anyway, yeah. So to to get back to your question about how RMI and RAP came to be involved, so going back to the North Carolina Clean Energy Plan, uh, RAP and RMI collaborated to facilitate the supporting North Carolina participant inputs of that process. For this process, the B1 process, RAP and RMI once again partnered to facilitate these stakeholder convenings, which were championed by DEQ. And an important point here that I need to make before I forget and miss the opportunity, um, RMI and RAP convened and facilitated NERP in consultation with DEQ. Um, RMI and RAP supported the process design coordination, provided expertise and technical assistance and perspectives. But we were not the authors of the recommendations, nor did we author the outputs. Uh, the, and that's really what's exciting here. The exciting thing is that these outputs are from the North Carolina stakeholders directly. Um, but like all things in 2020, my friend, our plans flew out the window and then they hit the ground and then they were ran over. So we all met once in February of 2020. Um, that was our first meeting. That was the last meeting we did in person. Um, from then on out, it was all virtual. So it became 40-some people meeting twice a month, every month, as well as um, many, many, many like sub-teams and sub-study groups, we called them, which were the groups that kind of developed and authored these outputs. You know, And so phase one of this process was like laying the foundation. Phase two was education where either one of like either RAP or RMI could deliver content or we could bring in a outside expert. Phase three has been policy development. And now, now we're in this like beyond NERP phase where the, the study group outputs are out into the world and intended, you know, for the commission and the general assembly. And you could argue that as like laborious as the 2020 process was like the real work is beginning now where uh, these outputs are going to go from, you know, recommendations and general guidance and a, a starting point to actually become proposed bills. And those will look, I imagine they'll look different in some ways from what the stakeholders put once you start getting stuff in the general assembly and people negotiate around it. But um, yeah, yeah. So now it's out for the North Carolina com community to get properly into all of this. You provided an important clarification um, at the beginning of your answer, which is that the scope of, of this group, of the NERP group, is much broader than just the recommendations that, that we mentioned earlier of, of PBR and securitization and wholesale electricity markets and competitive procurement. 
So it sounds like the group was was looking at uh, you know a whole variety of options that would fall under the umbrella of regulatory reform. And then the other the other thing that I think you you mentioned that was interesting um, is that you know the findings of of the report that was recently published are not you know the findings and are not authored explicitly you know by RAP or by RMI, but are, are those of the stakeholders that are in the group. So to that point, can you tell us a little bit more about some of the stakeholders that were in the room throughout this entire process? Yeah, man. Yeah. The, the, the outputs were not authored by our mind rap at all. They, they are from the North Carolina stakeholders. You're right. Um, and you know, North Carolina is a dynamic market and the number of participants is growing and the nature of the relationship to the, the grid is changing. So that being true, the process called on, quite a diverse group, dude. Obviously we had the folks you'd expect, uh, reps from Duke Dominion, the state co-ops, municipal utilities, the utilities commission, clean power reps. Um, but we had academic institutions, environmental organizations, Sierra club, NC Warren, and a whole list that I'm, I'm missing, but we had reps from the governor's office, the state attorney general's office, the General Assembly, large industrial customers, I mean, the Southern Environmental Law Center, et cetera. It was a diverse crowd. It was really a diverse crowd. So it was fun, though. You know, uh, the North Carolina stakeholders are active. Most of the folks in the room knew each other. Sometimes they're in opposition, right? So it was fun to watch them now be put in a situation where they had to actually collaborate and produce an output together and devise solutions that to address one of your earliest, you know, questions does consider this winners, losers, how to benefit all, how to dream up, uh, what an inner, what, what a regulatory future could look like and what the respective organizations would need to do in a new regulatory landscape. And I think it's, um, you know, really interesting that you mentioned that wide group of, of diverse stakeholders, which, you know, brings up the point that, you know, electricity, it seems to have a touch point with every sector of the economy, you know, people from all backgrounds across the state, you know, thinking about, um, you know, low income citizens, thinking about, you know, commercial customers. I mean, really, it's it's representative of, of everybody across the state. So it's important that you guys had that diverse representation in the room to make sure that all voices were considered and coming out with the mm -hmm. final recommendations from this report. Um, so to that point, can you talk a little bit about some of the ideas that were discussed and considered throughout the process that led us to the final recommendations that were published just before the holidays? Nothing was sacred, right? So early on, there was a, an obvious recommendation that was like, oh, join PJM. And then <clears throat> that was debated for a while and the merits and the cost uh, to, to, to that were, you know, debated, presented and reviewed. And the group for a while just didn't advocate for, for doing that. And then um, considerations for like the North and South, like a North and South Carolina system and, and seem kind of in, encourage folks to take a look again and, and talk about or consider how uh, broader market reform could be relevant or could be beneficial if it could or and such. And then, you know, with, I think PBR, the PBR mechanisms are probably the way you can get closest to it, but equity 
and access um, heavily drove all stakeholders. Like that was one that was top of mind um, for uh, this process. I think the state's stakeholders were quite cognizant of that and, and wanted um, to evaluate solutions that could address these needs that are important to North Carolina and decide because of North Carolina's, you know, context, every place is different, right? And like each, each state system is, is different. Like quite literally the processes that in the markets are all different and uh, considerations and need are all different. So there was a lot of stakeholders um, wanting, needing to look at how to best support the state and also decide which of these potential regulatory areas and reforms were relevant and applicable to North Carolina. So you took us a little bit through the journey um, of the group over the course of, of 12 months and you know, highlighted maybe some ideas that came up that didn't make the, the final recommendations in that report. But I am curious, especially, and I, I know our listeners are too, especially since the, the final report was just recently published, um, can you tell us a little bit more about some of those recommendations that, that we see in that report um, and why these recommendations and solutions are well-suited for the North Carolina market? Sure thing, Matt. So let's let's start at the top. Performance-based regulation. The recommendations here for the legislature and utilities commission to pursue a comprehensive package of PBR reforms uh, to include a multi-year rate plan revenue decoupling and performance incentive mechanisms, right? So these are things like revenue decoupling, where again, revenue isn't tied to kilowatt hour sales. The multi-year rate plan would reduce the frequency of rate cases, which anyone can testify is laborious, exhausting, and quite lengthy. Multi-year rate plans, they can, they can incentivize, you know, utilities to contain costs and reduce, they obviously reduce regulatory costs. And then the, they can also benefit, you know, IPPs with price and market price uncertainty. Um, and then performance incentive mechanisms identify and track utility performance against previous year X which can serve as a benchmark and offer a way to measure and monetize progress towards, you know, insert a goal. Could be efficiency gains, emissions reduction, what have you. Uh, so that was the first area of recommendation. And then the second would be uh, we can go securitization. So if properly designed securitization uh, used with coal retirement plan can lower customer bills, reduce air and water pollution, support coal plant communities in, in the transition, and allow utilities to reinvest in clean energy to replace lost revenue, right? And, and uh, lost revenue from legacy coal plant investments. Um, so the securitization study group recommended that North Carolina's General Assembly expand the existing securitization um, and make it a tool for electric utilities to retire undepreciated assets in addition to the current use around storm recovery costs. The specific recommendation was accompanied in the report um, with some best practices from Colorado. And it stands to reason that if you're retiring assets, you need to 
that generation needs to be replaced, right? That, that lost generation needs to be replaced. So um, that is my way of a segue to another output area, which is the competitive procurement study group. So the competitive procurement study group recommended that North Carolina's General Assembly expand existing procurement practices to utilize competitive procurement as a as a tool um, for the state's electric utilities to meet energy and capacity needs defined in their respective IRPs and where otherwise appropriate, deemed appropriate by the North Carolina Utilities Commission. So NERP also offered uh, that state policy regarding uh, utility competitive procurement should take into account um, unique characteristics of the utilities service territory. So for example, like Dominion, which serves, you know, customers in the Northeast of the state doesn't actually own any generation in North Carolina. And the Virginia Clean Economy Act um, would impact Dominion anyway, because there are relevant considerations there. Um, and then, so obviously North Carolina has a number of independent power producers, right? So competition drives innovation and lowers prices. And this is a way to address customer demand, corporate buyer goals. That's a huge influencer, right? And leverage point, uh, utility need, and, you know, drive the state GDP. So the group provided multiple, uh, they provided a couple of case studies and policy recommendation document to support, to support this area. And then finally, the, uh, the wholesale electricity market group. Uh, they recommended the General Assembly direct the North Carolina Utilities Commission to conduct a study um, into the benefits and costs of a series of wholesale electricity market reforms and the associated implications. Specifically, they recommend they recommended studying a regional transmission organization and studying an energy imbalance market um, of either either defined by North and South Carolina or broad broader to the southeast or, or some other thing um the group also recommended that the recently announced southeastern energy exchange market seem be reviewed uh in the same study and with the same you know like equivalent equivalent rigor and and ultimately you know the group was thoughtful to not confine the north carolina utilities commission and relevant scope of the study so they they added that the utilities commission should study another mechanism if it finds it a merit. So this could be things like uh, joining an existing RTO, joint dispatch agreements beyond the what exists now, or developing a customer choice program, which uh, allows uh, large customers choose an independent electricity provider, which while not a wholesale market transaction by definition, does feature larger interconnection voltages. All right. What's... What's next? Now that this report is out with the final recommendations, um, mm -hmm. which will include a link to that in our show notes for our listeners so they can read themselves, you know, where, where do we go next? How or do we take these recommendations and implement them into action? Well, the next step was sleep. Copious amounts of it, too. Um because this was a huge amount of work for all the stakeholders and the facilitators. And so I hope, I hope the North Carolina audience recognizes the, the amount of effort that their, you know, their fellow North Carolinians put into this process. Cause it was, it was immense and, and done in, in good faith. So um, we had our last workshop in early December and the study groups 
you know, they, I think they worked up till like mid of, mid of the mid of the month to finalize the outputs. And then everything was, you know, finalized as, as I think you said earlier, right before the holiday break. And so the last workshop was dedicated then um, to your question. What is next? So in the, in the products that in the outputs, there are th- three draft pieces of legislation. Um, so, uh, which should, which I would imagine, you know, will be looked at, um, and, and considered as a starting point. Um, so following the process, you know, some, some stakeholders are continuing to refine the details and find areas of alignments in, in the proposal to advance collectively. You know, these are things that may not need support by our mind or happen. That's wonderful. But, you know, we've made it clear that we're happy to support however needed because, you know, participants will need to now consult independently with North Carolina's policymakers, the decision makers, other constituents in the state to brief and educate them on these potential reforms. Uh, the products of this process can aid in, you know, briefings and and further refinement of policies to come for, you know, policies to come for advancement through the regulatory process. You know, I have to imagine that the draft legislation produced um, will be subject to continued iteration, uh, especially as the legislative session gets underway. Well, it's encouraging to hear that the recommendations coming out of this report, you know, aren't going to go and, and sit on a shelf and collect dust on a shelf, you know, over the next coming years. But there are real opportunities to pick up where this group has left off and, and think about ways in which we could, you know, bring some of these into fruition in the state. And, you know, some of those opportunities or mechanisms in which you talked about are through legislation in the General Assembly or through the Utilities Commission and, you know, a number of stakeholders that, you know, have been involved in the B1 stakeholder process are, are the ones that are actively working on these issues. And so I'm sure they're going to take a lot of the conversations that they had in these meetings into their daily work, um, including that of NCSEA. So, you know, Josh, I, I will echo, you know, the same sort of uh, you know sentiment that you um, issued earlier in just you know, thanking all of the stakeholders in the group for all of their hard work and making this this report happen. Um, you know, it's easy to look at that report and and think that it's just the you know the text on the paper, right? But knowing the number of meetings that have taken place over the course of the year that that led to this and the various stakeholders that are in the room, from the utilities to advocates all across the board, um, is is really important. So, um, just one last question for you. Um, a little bit earlier on this episode, we also heard from Kate over at the Nicholas School for Environmental Policy Solutions at Duke University, who keyed us into some of the findings from the A1 group. Does that work of that group also integrate at all into the findings of this group? Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a great question. So, um, I, I, yeah, so I think each process was was intended to operate independently, right, of the other, so that deliverables from one weren't contingent on deliverables of the other, um, you know, because the processes were so uh, um, detailed. Um, 
so each each, each one kind of needed the freedom to have, to breathe a little bit. But that said, you know, there are obviously going to be some overlaps, I would imagine, right, in terms of content and desired result. Both of these are pathways established by the clean energy plan, right? So, like, while emission reductions were a stated goal of uh, the B1 process, it's uh, it B1 process participants, it's it's um, the process purview was via regulation and business model reform, if, if that makes sense. But a number of stakeholders participated in both. And that is probably the best way I can think to like tie a bow around uh, these lengthy download sessions. You know, North Carolina is home to some of the most driven energy and community leaders in the country. I mean, and I do mean that sincerely. Like I'm fortunate with my perspective to get to work across the country in processes like this, um, watching these stakeholders collaborate on this front and many others, seeing how they tirelessly dedicated, uh, you know, their time and their effort to the state and the climate, the environment and the energy transition is a hell of a show, man. And if that doesn't make you want to get involved in this kind of stuff, I don't know what will. Those are encouraging words to leave this episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast with. Since you mentioned the words energy transition, I will also use this opportunity to plug RMI's own podcast, The Energy Transition Show, hosted by Chris Nelder, who we actually featured on a webinar last year in 2020. So uh, shout out to your team for putting together that uh, awesome podcast. And so, um, Josh... Thank you so much for joining us on this episode to key us in a little bit more on all the work that went in behind the scenes to make this B1 final report possible. So looking forward to seeing those recommendations grow some legs and maybe uh, grow into something bigger and better here in North Carolina to continue to advance clean energy and help us meet some of our uh, emissions goals and some of the goals that are established in the clean energy plan. So Josh, thank you so much for joining us today on the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Yeah, Matt. Thanks, man. My key takeaway from the conversation with Josh is that North Carolina has a plethora of options to consider as we move to further align the interests of the utility and the consumer on our way to meeting the goals set out in the Clean Energy Plan to reach carbon neutrality by 2050. It's like an all-you-can-eat buffet for regulatory reform models. The best part is if you don't like one of the options served, you've got numerous others on the table to consider as well. As the legislature continues to convene as part of the long session, it will be interesting to see which, if any, recommendations from this report they decide to pick up and run with as a means to improving North Carolina's energy market. So whether it's PBR, a wholesale market, securitization, or a competitive procurement program, stay tuned to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast to hear the latest of what's moving forward in the market. And that's a wrap on part two of this episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. But before you go, I'm happy to introduce the newest segment to the podcast that's here to stay, the North Carolina Solar Traveler. Every episode, join us as we travel to each corner of the state to tell the story of clean energy and the value it brings to our local communities. Along the way, you'll also have the chance to learn a little bit more about each of those communities that call these projects home. So on this week's episode of the North Carolina Solar Traveler, we're gallivanting down to the southeastern part of the state to visit our friends in Duplin County. And to lead us on this journey is NCSEA's own 
Energy Program Manager and Duplin County native, Daniel Pate. Thank you for allowing me to join you on this journey, Matt Abel. We are going to start with a stop that is very special to my heart, Duplin County. This county is located in the heart of southeastern North Carolina, just a stone's throw away from the Atlantic Ocean at about 55 miles away. In this county, you will see agriculture as a staple of the local economy as it is known as the swine capital of the country. North Carolina lays claim to be one of the largest pork producers in the country, just behind Iowa, having grown to over a $2 billion industry in the state. Duplin and Sampson County account for 40% of all the hogs raised in the state. While we could spend the entirety of this segment talking about the growth of the pork industry and what it means to this part of North Carolina, it is still interesting to understand how this industry came to be. The industry really began to grow some legs back in the 1980s and early 1990s as tobacco demand began to slow and farmers in this part of the state were driven to diversify revenue streams. Between the need to diversify, the close proximity to already existing pork processing plants, and abundant feedstocks like corn and soybeans, Eastern North Carolina was the perfect landing place for the growing pork industry. Now let's dive a little bit into some clean energy statistics of this county. According to NCSEA's Increased North Carolina County Tax Revenue from Solar Report, Duplin County is one of the top three counties with the highest tax revenue percent increases on land installed with solar. Duplin County has had a total increase of over $360,000 in total property tax paid on participating parcels after solar installation. That, folks, is good for a 1,106% increase. And that property tax revenue translates to real benefits for Duplin County, helping to fund the school system, roads, and other important municipal benefits. There are a total of 58 installed renewable energy systems in the county, according to NCSEA's Always Reliable Renewable Energy Database, with 51 solar systems and seven biomass renewable energy systems. And a special shout out to the Warsaw Solar Facility, which is nearly 65 megawatts. According to an article from Spectrum News, this solar farm includes 850,000 solar panels that can produce enough power for 13,000 homes. Similar to the growth of the pork industry, southeastern North Carolina was primed and ready to take advantage of the similar growth in solar between the abundance of land and pro-clean energy policies in place in North Carolina. Duplin County has been the perfect example of how clean energy brings jobs, tax revenue, and economic opportunities to rural parts of the state. Oh, 
end the segment with a few fun facts about Duplin County. Duplin County is home to the famous Duplin Winery, the oldest winery in the state and the largest in the Southeast. In case you haven't seen it yet or heard about it, Duplin County is home to the world's largest frying pan, yes, frying pan, weighing two tons and having a diameter of 15 feet. And legend has it that it can hold up to 200 gallons of cooking oil. Also, while you're in Duplin County, run over to famous Sid's Barbecue in Beulahville, North Carolina. And that's it for this week's episode of the North Carolina Solar Traveler. For all you meal preppers out there, the world's largest frying pan might be worth visiting. How about being able to prep three weeks of meals all at the same time? Follow us as we visit other projects and counties from throughout the state as part of this ongoing series. If you have a story or project you'd like us to cover, drop us a line at info at Let's stay in touch on Twitter. Give me a shout at Matt Abel, M-A-T-T-A-B-E-L-E, for future episode ideas, questions for our next episode, thoughts on today's episode, and your worst energy joke one-liners. And episode 46 of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast is in the books. But before you leave, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share the pod on whatever platform you're listening in from. Sharing this podcast with your network and growing the friends of the pod helps us get just a little bit closer to our shared vision of a clean energy economy from North Carolina. All right, that's it. See y'all later.